1: Uh, today on the nose. A little bit later, we'll have a conversation that is triggered by some tweets, subsequently deleted by Donald Glover uh, about cancel culture. That may be the most slender premise for a conversation. I mean, the, the tweets have been sort of pounced on by other people and written about, but um, but it's you know it's a slender beginning. Uh, anyway, it's three tweets. And uh, also a, a piece by Amanda Hess, a good friend of ours and uh, frequent appearer on the show back in the day about Sinead O'Connor. Maybe somebody you haven't thought about for a while, but she's been thinking. I mean, Sinead O'Connor has been thinking a lot about Sinead O'Connor, so uh, she wants to let you know what she's been thinking. But we're going to begin with the Underground Railroad, uh, the Barry Jenkins adaptation of the acclaimed... Uh, Colson Whitehead novel, which just scooped up bushels of literary awards, uh, and Jenkins's adaptation runs on Amazon Prime. It's ten episodes. Uh, uses uh, as did Whitehead's novel, uh, The Techniques uh, of Magical Realism, to tell a very different story, or perhaps not a very different story, about slavery and its consequences. Um, so uh, joining us to do all of that today, we are very excited to have Tanisha Dugan, artistic uh, producer at Theater Works, uh, and Rich Holland, a principal at CoLab, founder of the Free Center, more about that in, in a few minutes, uh, and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. So before I get them going, let's hear a little clip. You're going to hear uh, really kind of the two of the principals here, Aaron Pierre as Caesar uh, and Tuso Mbedo uh, as Cora. Uh, This is from episode one, uh, chapter one, Georgia. Cora, will you come with me? It is past. Time to go. There is nothing here but suffering. Pain and suffering.
0: You're wrong about me, Caesar.
2: You think I'm some kind of look because my mama got away. But you're wrong. You're wrong. Ain't no kind of look. Only kind of had uh, was rotten. The kind that caused a woman to run away in the middle of the night
0: and leave her only child. Leave her to
2: bleed and rot on this damn plantation. that the kind of luck you're looking for.
0: I'm not supposed to be here. Where are you? Uh,
1: So, uh, that's, uh, Two slaves, I think that's pretty obvious, Cora and Caesar. Uh, If you read the book, you know a little bit more about their backstories and a little bit more about what they're referring to, Uh, but they are both talking about running away from the plantation where they're living. Uh, And... uh, Not much of a spoiler to say that is what they do. Uh, And uh, so let's just uh, talk a little bit about this. As I say, we have Tanisha Dugan and Rich Holland, uh, two of our regular and much cherished panelists uh, here to talk about this. So, Rich Holland, I'm going to start with you. First of all, you did something that I now realize probably we shouldn't try to do, which is – You watched a lot of episodes of this. Now that I've seen some of the Underground Railroad, I sort of realized I should have given us like two weeks so that we could go a little bit more slowly because this is not something that I at least am finding particularly easy to "quote unquote" binge. No, it was brutal. It was
2: um, it was brutal and traumatic and uh, and you know I don't really particularly like the word triggering, but it was you know uber triggering. And um, and uh, maybe it was the the pace at which uh, I viewed it, and uh, and I do uh, want to uh, slap Amazon on the wrist uh, for not being more thoughtful in how they release these things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh, um, but it it's uh, it it captured a kind of unnecessary to me darkness. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and it raised, um, suffering, uh, to a point of, um, where, where content gets stripped from it and, uh, and what you're left with is a conversation about vulgarity and, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that to me is a gigantic disservice, uh, to the tale of the Underground Railroad. It is the... Gigantic to service uh, to um, uh, to the possibility of triumph um, over oppression, and uh, and uh, I think quite a few missteps uh, were here. While uh, also tremendously seductive, um, the the faces in this movie are you know are portraits I could look at all day long.
1: Um, yes, and and by the way, I don't know if you're if you've seen this or are aware of it, but if you you want to do something along those lines, Barry you, Jenkins has released a thing called The Gaze, which is uh, 52 minutes. Uh, of um, more of the kind of these background actors or some of the actors who are not, you know, prominently featured. But it's just one by one them looking for prolonged periods of time uh, right into the camera while uh, a special score composed by – is it Nicholas Cretel I forget who, who wrote the music for this thing uh, – is uh, – uh, is playing in the background it's it's you, it's you wouldn't think you and nobody says anything you know and you wouldn't think you could watch that for 52 minutes but you could um fascinating Colin, because i think that that would be like now that
2: is a story right yeah. you know that is a story of 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 humanity and what's captured and locked in every last one of us you know and why uh we are equal and why uh um we deserve to to resolve you know, all of this horrendous stuff that's happened in the past, right? That's, that's a story that's rich and deep.
1: Okay. Um, I, want, I want to come back to some of the stuff you said, but I want to hear from uh, Tanisha too. I, I think uh, Rich was suggesting that maybe Amazon would have been better served by following more of the HBO model where you drop one of these episodes a week and give people a kind of a chance to, to chew on it is, instead of trying to plow through these things, uh, which does get to be, I think, pretty traumatic. But Tanisha, just interested. I know a little bit about what your reactions are from pre-show conversations, but but where are you right now?
0: Uh, i'm definitely i'm i'm glad we started with the like do not binge watch uh warning because I think that's um really important uh and i also feel like if WandaVision can be released week to week, i think we can do this here um i i um I agree wholeheartedly with everything uh, Rich has said, you know, Barry Jenkins is, is an auteur, right? He is, his filmmaking is stunning. Um, I think the landscapes and the faces and the beauty um, that he's extracting from sort of the the, the world um, is, you know, that is what he does and, and, and so kudos. Um, but I think for me, as a culture maker and a believer that culture not only tells the story of where we are, but where we're going, um, and as somebody, I said this to you all who who bought the book because you know it was something that smart people were reading, um, but never opened it because I now know <laughs> it, was, it was not it was not uh, it, it was not meant for me. Uh, I'm curious about our uh, obsession. With uh, this particular time period. Um, I think what it does for Black people is it reaffirms um, a p- placement in this hierarchy. And I think what it does for white people is it reaffirms their placement in this hierarchy. Um, and so, you know, when uh, Rich said that we are equal, I said, well, essentially, yes. But I think we know as Americans that's not true. Um, that Rich and I are different, that Rich and I have to move differently um, than you do, Colin. And and while I, I look forward to the last two episodes, because apparently those are the ones in which uh redemption is feels more palpable. Um for me, the project uh remains a status quo interpretation of who we are as Americans. And I'm not sure if uh containing the uh, brutality of whiteness and white supremacy within this time period actually tells the American story of its very long tentacles that reach out till today. Hmm. Um, and so that's so that's where I am with it now. But I am going to give it a break uh, and come back to the last four episodes because I kind of half watched the, seven, the seventh episode um, and see um, where I come to. But that's
1: where I am today. So I I would like just to explore this with both of you. Um, I think I don't mean to speak for Colson Whitehead or Barry Jenkins, but I think if one of them were here, uh, and this is a little bit based on on some reading too, I think what they would say is, yeah, I mean the 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 point ultimately of this, if if it could be said to have one point, is that in some ways it's meant to kind of upend the 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 standard kind of timeline of slavery as a thing that existed and then you know was dealt with and then went away you know that 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 in a way the the narrative of this work is about uh its black characters negotiating a series of different arrangements uh each one of which kind of turns out to be be something of a repetition uh, of what they were dealing with before. In other words, that that the idea uh, of, of escape is an illusion, you know, again and again, that the that, that sort of, you know, and I don't know this in a way that kind of sounds like what both of you guys. Well, particularly you What I heard you just say Tanisha. I mean, I don't know. I think the the auteurs would probably say, yeah, right. I mean,
0: right. And so I would say, and what for? right? Because if you don't come out, you Colin, don't come out of this saying, oh, I see the ways in which people, black and brown people negotiate their interactions with me. And how do I make that better moving forward? It just underlines what we know to be true, what we may not speak about, but what we know to be in the air of American discourse. So I'm not sure that the exclamation point around what exists actually moves us forward and i'm much more interested in moving us forward because we've been having this a similar conversation for 60 years right exactly. i said you know over the weekend i said to my uncle you know t- 2021 is kind of like 1963 and he was like uh, i don't know about that and i was like actually you got to sit down and really reckon yeah. with the fact that that is true um because if we keep saying there is a kind of progress that's happening um to me it's like the museum. To me, it's like South Carolina. To me, it's like, yes, you have the image of um, appropriated middle-class Black people, but underneath that is the same story of ones that are not. Um, So for me, it's about what does it do? What did it do to you, Colin? (laughs) What did it do for audiences like you? Did it move the needle for you in a way that made you go, oh wow that's happening right now that's in the, that's in the the seeds of what i'm doing today or did it did you go oh yeah well then that that is how it was um and i'm not sure the connections are being made
1: yeah i mean uh, I, I would say that i i the way that i interpret it i mean it's it is that he that that whitehead and and jenkins are saying that yeah i mean if you've lived through 2020 or or any recent year and have seen what has happened here, what has happened to to black people in America on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, the the body count, the humiliation, the macro aggression, the micro aggression, it doesn't really make any sense not to connect that to to the to the to the fallen origin story. Um, so yeah, I mean, in a way, the, what my, part of my takeaway? I mean, I haven't finished this the series yet either. But um, part of my takeaway is is yeah, we didn't really fix stuff. We we renamed it. We made it better, but I mean, nothing's fixed. Uh, and I mean, I, I kind of knew that without their help, but it drives it home. It drives the point home. So, so yeah, go ahead. So the- the challenge with
2: that for me, Colin, is like, absolutely. So, so we, we, the folks who are going to get that, mm. uh, already know that, mm. right? You know, the folks who aren't going to get that, this movie's not going to get them any closer to it. Um, this movie's going to provide them an out, you know, and provide them an out that says that, you know what, um, I did not just whip and burn a black man for literally 20 minutes on a tele on a on their uh computer screen um so i'm okay you know Mm. i'm not that monster you know and that out is being provided by that movie by the scale to which they raised these atrocities and and made them visceral and visible right and it also did a couple of things um uh that just that got under my skin i think you might hear it in my voice right now under my skin right It's this, uh, this uh, almost to the point of you know um, this way of treating black bodies, um, and uh, this this sort of um, willingness to explore uh, brutality on black bodies that is going that is um, prevalent in uh, in movie making and storytelling right now. Uh, this violence against black people that's being demonstrated, shown over and over and over and over again to greater extents, to deeper that the challenge here isn't telling the story in a new way. Um, but the challenge is how far can we go um uh with the depiction of this of this brutality? Mm-hmm. Um and uh when you ma- when you match that in the movie with uh with the times that um uh white people uh were, um, we're at the hands of the of these oppressors, at the hands of these supremacists. You know, their deaths happen either off screen. You know, or it's like the old Western way of a single bullet in the back, and you don't actually even see anything that happens. You know, yet the suffering um, that's depicted, uh, um, levied onto black bodies, it's just it's just it's an insanity and you know and, and i just i can't wrap my head around the why it doesn't make the story any more real you
0: and know? what and concerns me is that these are the the kinds of films by black filmmakers that are filmmakers that are funded because i yeah. think about this with queen and slim as well right lena waith's project um whose idea was actually germinated by a white man but that's a whole nother discussion for another day um It is it is interesting to me that the things that get greenlit continue this narrative in our culture, Um, which is why I said, you know, I want to wait until episodes nine and ten, because perhaps there is a map for what is next. Um, But I'm not hopeful that that is what uh, culture makers at the highest levels are interested in. I actually think that they are very much interested in keeping us where we are um, Mm -hmm. and and then making us excited for the beauty of the product, um, a la. This underground railroad, or Queen and Slim, um, but but keeping us from actually having the conversation that you know we are engaging with today, Rich, which is, what does it mean to regurgitate the brutality of Black bodies that you can easily see on the internet? On your evening news, uh, on your cable news, if that's something that is that is of your liking, what does it do to continue to tell that story in art form? Uh, and I think art, you know, I, I think I'm stealing this from an article I read in preparation for this, right? Is a uh, is is the brother of public education, right? It is the it its work is to move us, its work is to teach us, its work is to add context to the things uh, that we are learning um, as a collective. Uh, And right now we are supporting uh, the anti-critical race theory conversation (laughs) right now. We're supporting, you know, while it looks like the 1619 Project, it actually doesn't track beyond that. I don't know how many versions of Roots we need
2: Exactly. 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 It It all feels
0: like the same movie.
2: It all feels like the same movie with, you know, slightly better technology, with increasingly better technology and increasingly better, um, increasingly more challenges to what the audience is allowed to sit through from a censorship level.
1: Is the article that you read the one by Scott Woods by any chance? Because I, I do uh, yes. I, the piece in the Times, yes. yeah. And I mean, oddly enough, he kind of comes down in a really different place from you guys, though. I mean, he's actually well, of been, course. Very, very, yeah, he's Colin, been very. I was cr- itching
0: yeah. to find a black critic, yeah, to read, yeah, because yeah. I needed some context around the rave reviews. Don't get me wrong; I think this project should win all the Emmys. I think. Um, the actress whose name I don't want to slaughter, so I won't say it, deserves all the flowers. Mm. And also, where are my Black critics giving me the context I need to receive this? And I don't need Oprah, who I love dearly, but who is going to say with Harry and Meghan, she doesn't understand colorism, which is a flat-out lie. Mm-hmm. We know this to be true. So she is not uh, um, my preferred witness. Uh, she is not the best uh, I. uh for this, right? Uh, not to mention the fact that it was on her her book list. And so um, I think her collection and wanting for this to be a, a blockbuster sits in a different place. I need some Black critics to tell me where they sit with this project. And so far, what most people are saying is, don't binge. Yeah. <laughs> don't binge it. And it's beautiful.
1: Right. I mean, it was just interesting. Just, and I'm only saying this to say that Different sets of eyes can can see things in a in a very different way. I mean, S- Woods, who's been very specifically critical in other pieces of exactly the thing that you're talking about, Rich. This kind of fetishization uh, of the violence on the black body. Uh, I mean, singled out this thing for not doing that. And and, uh, and I, I just do wonder. I mean, we're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon. You know, for for black auteurs, whether it's it's Whitehead or or Jenkins, are they kind of damned if they do or damned if they don't? I mean, if they if they they don't confront the reality of this in, in pretty visceral ways. People are going to say, well, now you're glossing over it. Or to your point, Rich, it, you know, if they show white people suffering at a comparable level of violence to black people, are they engaging, are they going to be criticized for engaging in false equivalence? I mean, you know, is there, I'm wondering if there is any way to thread this particular needle if you're going to undertake the project at all.
2: Maybe we don't need to undertake the project for a while until we move a little further.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: um when i when I start looking at uh, at the overwhelming amount of uh, the the overwhelming critical reviews that I read about this that lifts up ideas like traumatic, unflinching, and relentless. Mm-hmm. you know, is that really what we need to is that all that this thing needs to be? you know is has that become um, the new standard of excellence?
1: yeah fair question fair okay. question yeah
0: or black storytelling
1: yes yeah, yeah, I think we can all agree Barry Jenkins, I mean you know it's we haven't seen that many movies so far he's still. You know he's still really for for somebody who's kind of early in his career right now, he's an amazing director and And what he's been able to do, I mean, this is a complicated thing, taking Whitehead's work, you know, which has a certain kind of texture, which has a certain kind of kind of narrative style to it, which supplies a lot of details that you can't supply in a movie to to do it, I think pretty successfully, the translation of this, you know using. Uh, you know obviously different kinds of techniques than than what an author does i really i'm super impressed anyway i mean we, we can go back and forth about whether this is anything anybody should have to endure but uh as art i think it's it shows a pretty uh, impressive I, I don't know i just i would watch any movie this guy made
0: as art it is stunning right is. as art yeah. it is stunning the 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 director the the photography the sort of the choice the visual choices the, the way in which he gives us the hints of magical realism throughout this is, is beautiful it's beautiful and also it is difficult when you are an artist not to want to get the things not to want to win the pulitzer not to want to get the oscar not to want to get the the, the shiny medals um and that comes with the sacrifice that too uh, is part of this dance that they talk about within this, within this mini Um, you gotta, you know, does it need to be made? Did it need to be written? I don't know. And yet we understand how to capture the dominant culture's imagination and how yeah. we can, um, use that to further ourselves. I mean, I think of, of Homer, the, I think that's the young boy's name. Right. And, mm. and I, and I think of the choice that character makes as a seven-year-old or eight-year-old um, to find his own individual success no matter what. And my question is, do we, can, do we have the capacity, after 400 years of the kind of brutality that we saw witnessed in this miniseries, do we have the capacity to actually serve as martyrs and sacrifices to the future legacy? Um, that isn't about what I can win today, about the flowers I received today, but the sacrifice I can make so that the one sitting here 60 years from now isn't having this conversation (laughs) with you.
1: Yeah, hopefully not. All right. Well, that's a pretty good bridge to where we're going in the the next segment. So maybe we'll stop there. Uh, By the way, I hunted around until I found a clip of her saying her own name. And so I'm pretty confident that it's Tuso Mbedo. Um Tuso Mbedu. Uh She's a South African a- actress, really hasn't b- been in a lot of stuff. And and sh- boy, what a, what, a, what a, as Rich said, the faces in this movie are just, or uh, in this series are are pretty incredible. And, and what the the story they just tell with their faces. All right, let's take a break. Uh The Underground Railroad is what we've been talking about. One, two, one, two, three. Yeah, in National. Underground thunderbolts and I stop the ground. Like a million elephants and back around the tank. You can't stop a train. Who wants up? Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. and this is The Nose. Uh, with us today, Tanisha Dugan, artistic producer at TheatreWorks, Rich Holland, uh, principal at uh, CoLab, founder of FreeCenter and commissioner uh, on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. And speaking of Free Center, Rich, I know you wanted to mention a couple of things going uh, on with that. Yeah, there's, There are two
2: things that are going on at FreeCenter. You could uh, find them at FreeCenter.us. Um, they are the top two graphics, and you could just jump right in. One of them we're holding a um, uh, two exhibitions, one in our Middletown space and in Hartford simultaneously, uh, and it's called Black Period. It's um, portraits of Black people by Black people, um, and uh, and you know, including the elusive self-portrait. Um, and that show will be traveling when we're wrapped up here in Connecticut to our new Free Center opening up in Baltimore this summer. Um, Along with that, uh, through the Artists of Color United advisory group uh, that advises um, the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, um, we have at Free Center received um, $150,000 to put um, uh, money to create art in the hands of independent BIPOC artists uh, using the simplest possible Ungrant looking process it's five questions about you five questions about your project and uh and um if you're a greater hartford independent BIPOC artist you'll pre-qualify for uh funding from two thousand to twenty thousand dollars to pay yourself first uh to do your work
1: all right so those are good uh, and, and kind of you know thematically tied to what we're talking about here today, I yeah. think, in some interesting ways too. So uh, speaking of thematically tied, uh, this is an interesting thing. I'll just sort of um, lift the curtain for a second and say it's usually pretty hard to get us all to agree about what we're going to talk about. But we did really, really easily today find two topics that we wanted to talk about. One of them are three tweets by Donald Glover in which he basically – in which he subsequently um, – got rid of, but he he said, saw people on here having a discussion about how tired they were of reviewing boring stuff, TV and film, We're getting boring stuff and not even experimental mistakes because people are afraid of getting canceled, so they feel like they can only experiment with aesthetic. Um, Also because some of them know they're not that good. He then deleted the tweets. But this started a conversation. So I don't know, Tanisha, help us understand, first of all, why why did you pounce on this as something you wanted to talk about?
0: because I'm always talking about how I hate cancel culture and then also like walking it back and saying, I, I don't mean it in the ways that some folks mean it over at Fox News. I mean it in the way of um, truly like squashing um, both experience and and creativity. Uh, mainly the, the experience piece because I uh, teach at the college level, and I'm fascinated by their um, inability to interface with anything that they have never interfaced with before. And I'm always curious about how one gets through life like that, because life is just not like that. Um, I also think about it in, in terms of, like, the pandemic, and while everyone is is, is feeling housed in by what the p- pandemic uh, has, has brought to them, I think because of uh, my my epigenetics <laughs> i'm am, i am built in a way that sees the opportunity uh in the in the trauma in the tragedy in the things that are um less than forgiving uh and i think that like cancel culture kind of works against a kind of resilience that is like essentially human if you're gonna make it through this this rock so so that's i think that's why i uh, am jumping on it because i feel like one, now that black people are talking about it in a different way, I think it um it hits different um because what we're offering is not about um, not what we're offering is not about safety because we have no expectation of that, right? Um, what we're talking about is full agency and the ability to kind of try anything, even if it's gonna mess it up, you know, because, you can ask for forgiveness. <laughs> you can mess up and then be like, "Ooh, I did that thing."
1: Right. Well, um, and, and the point of canc- the point of cancel culture, as it is some frequently exercised, is you can't ask for forgiveness, or exactly. you can ask for it, you won't get it. We should say that we also read a piece by Alex Miller, who jumped on these pieces uh, on these tweets for a piece in the Independent, and I keep saying "jumped on" because like Glover wrote them; they sort of feel like kind of thoughts that he's still forming, and then he erased them too. So I'm. Cancel culture. Yeah. Well, no. I'm just thinking. You know. So he's got Miller's pieces. Donald Glover is right. I'm sick of white people canceling things on my behalf. I mean, his level of confidence that he knows what Donald Glover thinks is higher than mine, anyway. Uh, but I mean, there's obviously the beginning of a conversation here. So yeah, Rich, give us your thoughts. Um. So what was fascinating about this for me is,
2: um, is that it. I didn't. I haven't been over the past year. I have not been thinking of cancel culture as a binary thing, as a cancel or don't cancel, right? Uh, it's about the conversation around cancel uh, that I find far more interesting than the actual canceling itself. You know, so what actually gets a pass? You know? And where is, it, is there somewhere in this a line that we could eventually define that says like, okay, this is when you cross it. You know, um, uh, Folks who tend to agree with me, I think don't need to be canceled as much. Right. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and so there's, uh, there's this peculiarity of, of, you know, even how this is negotiated. Right. And when I take a look at the, uh, um, uh, the article, um, in the independent, which I think is a worthy read because I also found it to be somewhat problematic, Mm -hmm. um, is as he started looking at, um, some of the concerns around uh, you know, what we say and how we say it, it came down to uh, um, who we convince, you know, who we bring along. And there was this concern about that some stuff that we could be putting out there is just never going to be um, you know, acceptable to, uh, to a right-wing um, uh, audience. And um, and so we need to give some thought to what we say um, as though uh, that kind of persuasion um, is really what we're working toward.
1: Yeah, Um, I I feel like it's important to sort of have some kind of I thought Miller's piece was kind of short on specifics, mm -hmm. like specific examples. So, you know, I mean, we have situations where somebody. Turns out to have some fairly fairly repellent ideas and we just didn't know that Gina Carano from the Mandalorian would be an example of that but w- when I think of cancel culture when I read about it um, most of what I'm reading about is you know you can't cancel Jordan Peterson you can't cancel Donald Trump you can't cancel people whose base of power already exists within essentially a right-wing world that a- already applauds them for saying the stuff that they're saying you can only cancel people who are much closer to you and in- ideologically center center or left, which is why maybe somebody like J.K. Rowling, you know, faces... I mean, you can't cancel her either. She's the best-selling author of all time, but uh, but you know, to me that's one of the things that I don't think Miller explored pretty very... I mean, the people who are worried, the people that Glover's talking about who are worried, they're not conservatives. They're center-left center, center left people who feel like they're going to make a mistake, right?
0: Well, I mean, it's... you. First of all, you can't cancel people who refuse to go away. So I don't even... I don't think that trump as the example of of a potential recipient of cancel culture is is actually appropriate right because but miller
1: did make that example he, i thought it was a bad example no, yeah.
0: he, no he did not make that example but i but i also think that cancel culture is 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 first of all the 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 word and the idea is a framing for right wings to hurl at liberals um so there's that, right? And I think that liberals tend to be the most uh, effective in canceling their own people. I think of um, I can't remember his name right now. You guys will fill it in. Uh, Representative uh, from Minnesota. Old comedian on SNL. Al Al Franken. Thank you. Al Franken. Who I think we all would say we, we, we as a collective canceled him, right? But like, was that really... The right move for the legacy, right for where we actually want to go, um, I think the the rights activities would tell you that not canceling the worst of them is a part of their legacy, is a part of the tra- trajectory they want to be on. Um, I, I think this. I think this is a, a specifically liberal issue a white liberal issue which is why i think that article rang so true for me because it is about white liberals trying really hard not to step in something um and and i have i have witnessed places where wonderful white liberals have apologized to me for things that i just think to myself really really
1: (laughs) But that's to Rich's point about where the line is, right? I mean, I think a, a lot of what we're seeing, and maybe we're on a kind of a shakedown cruise here, but I think there's a lot of people who who don't, you know, it's hard to figure out. For example, two journalists, one of whom I know pretty well, have been really kind of effectively canceled because. They engage either engaged in conversations about whether journalism should ever actually say the N-word in order to report it, to to cite it, to make a point. In other words, do you say that Mark Furman said the N-word or do you actually say the word that Mark Furman said? Uh, Or And in one case, this is a guy who used the word in talking to students about why the word is objectionable. But speaking the word out loud seems to have, in the case of Don McNeil in The New York Times – uh, and Mike Pesca, who I think was mainly engaged in conversations about whether the maybe journalists should sometimes actually say the word, they're you know they're neither one of them is in their old position anymore, and and I wouldn't have known beforehand that that's where the line was. Particularly uh, like good intentions, which I think both of them had, were not enough in that particular situation. And to me, Rich, that's if you're sort of saying where's the line? Yeah, I don't know where the line is. Uh, you only know by w- watching like who. Who gets gets you know a yellow card?
2: But the the, the interesting thing about what you were just stating there, uh, that that example, Colin, is mm. I don't believe that it was the discourse uh, that that caused the yellow line. Mm. I think that what caused the yellow line is um is some uh is slippery is slippery slope thinking, right? You mm. know, it's folks who make every decision um, looking at you know this this potential perceived you know, sometimes fantasy of a slippery slope. You know, it's like, well, if we could say it now in this context that we feel really right about it, you know, what happens when, you know, when uh, this guy gets a hold of it? Mm -hmm. And that
0: line was drawn from from a hierarchical place, Mm -hmm. right? Let's be honest, it wasn't, like you said, Rich, it's not from the discourse. And I think part of the reason why I was attracted to this conversation in relationship to underground railroad is that like this is the thing that we are going to use to stop the way we treat each other this is the this is the package in which we're willing to have this conversation that feels specifically ridiculous right Hmm. i mean what what are we talking about right
2: realistically this is how the underground railroad gets made this is exactly yes. how the Underground Railroad gets made, right? Um, because they're not going to push the boundary. What they're going to push the boundary is is around, you know, this narrow window of what's acceptable. Okay, so violence is acceptable. How much violence is acceptable? But not about the narrative. You know, the challenge is never about, you know, the narrative. Um, you know, anyway, I could, you know, it, it, the, the, um, the white mercenary is still the white mercenary. You know, he is still the one that is going to afford Cora her liber- her freedom from herself in this story. Right. That goes unchecked. And it's delivered in that story in a completely plausible manner. Unchecked.
0: And that's uh, the line between, exactly. you know, the, the writer who got his job lost because his boss said, oh, slippery slope. And I'm going to decide how free you can be. That That is that is exactly it. That is exactly the, the connection. And.
1: Although, just as sort of historical record, and this because it's something that I followed a lot, I mean, in a lot of these cases, like in the case of the New York Times, it's really the newsroom pressing management saying, we don't like this and we don't like this at all, and we want you to do something about it. I don't think it's exclusively hierarchical. But uh, think
0: about the makeup of the newsroom.
1: Yeah, but I mean, once again, it's often uh, black employees in, in the newsroom. Right? Yeah. They,
0: yeah, tells me that there's still some reckoning that even you have to deal with with that reality right Mm -hmm. because that room is made up of people who are afraid of being uh caught up in the crossfires of cultural um missteps you know
2: And, and you know you raised al franken a little while ago my recollection of that story might be a little bit different you know but i remember about getting caught up in the in the crosshairs of this discourse that al franken was one of the first that was ready to cancel himself. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, Well, yeah. Although, I mean, to me also, I'm not, I feel like there's a meaningful distinction between the me too movement in which I would put the Al Franken story uh, and cancel culture. You know, I think think there's
0: not a meaningful. There's
1: not a meaningful distinction. Okay. And
0: I think it's really important that we don't because part of me too me too and cancel culture intersect there is a venn diagram in which those two things exist and it's not to, to diminish um sexual abuse and and patriarchy it's to really define the weaponization of my personal comfort right i mean this has a venn diagram with the karen <laughs> you know, narrative.
1: Yeah. Although, if you look at the Glover thing that we that started all this and the Alex Miller thing, this isn't about, oh, well, all my friends are afraid to sexually abuse women now because, uh, you know, because they're going to get canceled. It's no, all these people that I know are people who creators, they're afraid to say certain things, to couch certain arguments in a certain way, to make certain kinds of artistic statements because they feel like they may cross this line that they can't see that well. You know, so, so to the extent that Glover and Miller are, are launching us on a conversation. I, I don't think it's in the Franken direction. I think it's in the other direction.
0: I think it's the same direction, right? I think it's about what am I what am I allowed to do in this 2021? Yeah. Whether it is what am I allowed to say, whether it's what art am I allowed to make, uh, what jokes can I tell, you know, to, to sort of lead us down the Chris Rock Road. If everything is about a certain kind of safety as defined by a certain group of people, we are in a a world of trouble. And I think we get really dangerous when we try to separate these things that are together um, because it allows us to make, uh, I don't want to say excuses, but talk around the very thing that is actually the essential conversation, which is I get to tell you what you can and cannot do. Rich. I get to tell you where your, where your sexual comfort, where, where my sexual comfort is. You get to tell me where yours is, yeah. 100%. Um, but that the world also gets to have a conversation about, or, and input and influence, about how our overall life trajectories move based on what I say, what I make, what I do, how I've moved, with no prospect of absolution with no prospect of forgiveness, with no opportunity for me to say, I messed up, show me how to make it better.
1: Uh, Rich, I think you might be getting the last word on this based on the clock.
2: Okay, um, my, last, my last word on this, huh, is um, it feels like the conversation is about alignment. You know, what will I be associated with? Um, and there's a piece of it that always feels like it's about legacy and canceled culture um, is, is, or this idea of cancellation, right? I don't even like calling it a culture. Uh, this idea of cancellation, um, this sort of witch hunting uh, approach, the Salem quality to it, um, uh, seems to come down to, uh, is this the sword you will die on? Um, because this is what the epithet is going to be. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's there's something that I think is incredibly, incredibly dangerous about that, Um, uh, Not just from an arts and culture standpoint, um, but dangerous in how we can possibly ever heal in a society Um, with that as the overhang uh, for, um, for gravitating towards justice.
1: All right, we're going to stop there. We're we're going to sort of, unfortunately, we didn't get to the Sinead O'Connor conversation because this was so interesting. Uh, So I will recommend that you you read Amanda Hess's New York Times profile of Sinead O'Connor. And meanwhile, we'll play one of her songs, which doesn't really make sense in this context anymore. All right. I just want to quickly say that the song that we went out with is You Made Me the Thief of Your Heart from the soundtrack to The Name of the Father. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is that in this piece, that Amanda Hesby, Sinead O'Connor does, says this thing about how, I guess she was about to go back out on tour or do something, and she didn't realize she didn't know the words to any of her songs, and she went back and kind of reviewed her own catalog and went, wow, this is really good. I really like this stuff. So, But I just sort of had the same experience listening to that. I'm going, wow, I haven't listened to Sinead O'Connor in a long time, and that's kind of a cool song. All right, so uh, I got to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's here in the studio. She's our technical producer, solving problems all the time. She's a whiz at it. Uh, Jonathan McPants is the producer of pretty much all episodes of The Notes, including this one. So thanks to both of them. Uh, and Tanisha Dugan and Rich Holland are our panelists today. We're about to make some recommendations. And Tanisha, why don't you get us going with that?
0: I always forget their recommendations, but I'm going to start with endorsing. You can some- d- call me either thing. <laughs> and and, endu- and a belated endorsement to my father who passed away on April 27th. Mm. Uh, thank you, sir, for making me the woman I am, um, and for the legacy that you have delivered to me to exist in this world.
1: Oh, that's so, I'm so sorry to hear that. I didn't know that, and and very sorry it, to ha- hear
0: it is the circle of life yeah. and we've all been through a lot of it this year so i also want to endorse everybody who has dealt with mm-hmm. uh the highs and lows of what life has to offer us and my final endorsement is the connecticut office of the arts the mahaffey fellowship in which i was a recipient of and to the amazing incomparable loving janika brown springer uh, mm-hmm. who is a hartford uh who's the daughter of Hartford, uh, East Hartford, actually. Um, but I wanted to speak her name because I am so very proud of what uh, she has done. And thank you for letting me borrow your brother every now and then when I have some <laughs> some, comp- some sound composition I have to do. Oh, cool. so those are my endorsements.
2: All right, today. Rich Holland, how about you? Um, I am reading two books, rereading two books simultaneously. That's what I've been doing lately. I haven't been reading new books. I've been rereading books um, that, that uh, connect to me. One of them, uh, uh, and, and reading them simultaneously, which is kind of really interesting. It's, it's weird because they're so much about culture. Uh, one of them is uh, Edw- uh, Edwidge Danticat's uh, After the Dance, uh, which is about um, uh, the southern part of Haiti where I'm from and, uh, and her experiences of, of carnival and, um, and how incredibly I related to everything that she says even though I came here when I was three years old, right? That that culture endures in a beautiful way. Um, there's a chapter in this book that's called uh, "How Jesus and Simon and uh, Simon Bolivar Came to Share a House in Jacmel." Um, it's funny, it's heartful, and lovely. Simultaneously, um, I'm reading uh, Banana Yoshimoto's book um, uh, uh, "Kitchen," and uh, another beautiful, beautiful piece. Lyrically written, full of um, this kind of quirky uh, romanticism uh, that comes from a culture that's unfamiliar to me. So I get to 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 see love and romance and the complexities of food in a uh, in a completely different way and appreciate it so much more.
1: Wow. Well, that's, first of all, great uh, endorsing and recommending from both of you. Thank you so much for that. I'll quickly, I, Rich just made me think of this with the, when talking about the Free Center Project. I'm just going to mention the portraiture and, and art in general of Benny Andrews. Benny Andrews uh, was a dear friend of mine uh, during his lifetime, uh, was part of a generation of black artists, uh, maybe a little bit younger than Jacob Lawrence and Romare Bearden, but kind of positioned somewhere in that cohort. Uh, I know the Athenaeum has at least one of his paintings, and there's been some retrospectives recently. And it if you just look at some stuff online, I think you'll see some of the power of it. And he was just a beautiful, beautiful person. Uh, I love New York Times obituaries, and I'm going to recommend one by Richard Sandomir. They use some of their best writers to write the obituaries. It's the obituary of Spencer Silver, the research chemist at 3M, who inadvertently uh, created the not-too-sticky adhesive that allows Post-it notes to be removed and put back up and stuff like that. He, he waits way too long to point out that Lisa Kudrow in the Romy and Michelle's high school reunion pretended to be essentially Spencer Silver. Silver at our own high school reunion. But that's in there and a lot of other stuff, too. All right. So thanks very much to uh, both, uh, our, both of our wonderful panel- panelists, Rich and Tanisha. Thanks to everybody who listened. And we'll be back next week.